Good morning. I'm closing out a series of looking through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, and as we've looked at week by week, it has a theme of joy running through it. When we see his conditions, we're surprised by this joy. Paul is imprisoned. He's cut off from those that he cares about. He's sitting alone in prison while the churches he has planted are being attacked by those whose goal is to alienate believers from him. And yet joy is the theme of the letter he writes in order to ask, answer the question, why is this man smiling? Let's talk a little bit, as we did in the beginning of the series, about Paul's relationship with the Philippian church in about AD 51, in obedience to a vision, Paul left the Middle East where he had been confining his missionary endeavors and set sail for what we now call Europe. And his first stop was the Roman colony of Philippi. He met a group of faithful Jewish women on a river, proclaimed the Christian gospel, found a receptive audience, and that was the beginning of what became a church base in that Roman colony. After having spent some time there, he left Luke in charge, who wrote the gospel, and headed west. When he stayed in Corinth for a period of time, he received assistance from the Philippian church. They just had this thing about them where they they learned about his status. They learned that he had some material financial issues, and they rolled up their sleeves and got involved. About a year later, Paul set out on his third and last missionary journey, and one of the goals was to raise money from Gentile churches for Jewish believers in Israel who were impoverished and going through very difficult things. Because the Philippians were in financial straits, they had already shown such generosity, Paul was not intending to request that they participate in this project. However, they learned about it, and they insisted on participating anyways. Um, He eventually brought this offering to Jerusalem, and while he was presenting it there, he was taken into custody, remained in Caesarea for two years, and then he appealed to Rome and was given an audience with the emperor, He set sail then for Rome, and within a few months of his arrival, the Philippians once again became aware of his situation. They raised money, and they sent one of their number, Epaphroditus. They said, here, we want you to give this to Paul. And Epaphroditus went on this journey, became sick, almost died en route, and was able to bring this offering to Paul. It was a truly... a a blessing to him. He was at a loss to know how to express his thanks to a church that had given so sacrificially. And he wrote this letter, the letter to the church at Philippi. And a big purpose was to say thank you. And let's look at how he closes out this letter. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Begins, he says, I rejoice greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. When tragedy or illness strikes, it's surprising to find out how many people care. We were with the family, the Breifogel family, and I'm sure that's what they are thinking today. They're thinking about all the people that came around them when they learned of David's passing. It just seems to be the way it is. Tragedy, illness, death. Individuals that haven't had contact with them, they come around, and it's surprising the, the extent of concern. In the dailiness of life, we have to make opportunities to connect with people. But when disaster strikes, they're built-in opportunities. And when Paul is imprisoned, this becomes an opportunity for the Philippians to care for Paul by sending him aid, and that's exactly what they do. Um, this was the kind of giving that Paul encouraged. And when you think of them doing this, this is, was not something that they had to do. It was something that they wanted to do. This was the kind of giving that Paul encouraged, not coerced, but willing. And we've talked about the characteristics of New Testament giving. Um, it's more free will and face-driven. What I mean by free will, it's not coerced. Christian giving is not something you have to do, and it's face-driven. When Paul goes to churches, he paints a picture of the suffering saints in Jerusalem and being struck with that they, people give to that, or they think of Paul languishing in prison and they give to him. That's what New Testament giving is like. Um, you give because you care. Uh, Paul writes when he was... Um, Taking an offering, he thought, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reach 
reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. This text is written out under gracious giving. Um, for Jews living at the time, giving was an exaction. You say, what? What's well, an exaction? Let me tell you the definition I found for an exaction. It's a sum of money demanded for a payment or a service. That's what an exaction is. It's, amount, it's an amount of money given as a payment for a um, it demanded for a payment or a service. The tithe at the time when you were a Jew, and if you practiced Judaism, the tithe was an exaction. It was something that was demanded, expected. And Paul, that's not what Christian giving was to be for Paul. It was not to be a debt that was owed or a bill that was paid. And in some churches, you receive a statement about the church understanding how much you make, and the amount of tithe is actually submitted to you as a bill. And not every church. I've only heard of several. But that's not the way it should be. It's not, you know, some of us, we set aside some, and we do it through bill pay, but it's it's the spirit of it. It's Christian giving is to be something that is not coerced. It's to be willing. You're supposed to give because you want to participate in causing that which the church or whatever thing is doing. You want it to continue on. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, Paul says each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not to be given reluctantly. The word reluctantly literally is out of pain. You know, it's, it's, my, my father makes fun of my brother, and he says, my brother has short arms and long pockets. It's painful for him to get his, his hands into his pockets to get there again. Um, it's, it's not to be given out of pain. It's not, oh, uh, when it says uh, not to be given under compulsion, under compulsion has the idea of a bent arm. And I'm not sure if it's, it's when you think of somebody strong-arming you out of money and just kind of taking your arm and, and twisting to try to bring about, come on, get your, get your wallet out. And it's not to be either of those things, Paul says. Christian giving is not to be a painful endeavor. Not something you're strong-armed into doing. It says God loves a cheerful giver. We're familiar with the word cheerful from another context, and we talk about it. It's helios. It's the word helios. And helios means gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful. That's what helios means. God loves a cheerful giver, a benevolent giver, a favorable giver. And the idea is, as opposed to out of pain and being strong-armed, a Helios giver is giving, gives because they're willing to. Now, we know that word from the New Covenant, which at the end of this morning will experience communion together. And again, you're welcome to participate. If you're here, join with us. And the thing we celebrate at communion is the new covenant. 
and what it says in the final clause of the new covenant, it's, tra- it's several texts, they have it different ways, um, but what it literally says, I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses and will remember your sins no more. That's what it says. I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses and will remember your sins no more. We think of God forgiving sins, and we think of him out of pain, uh, or we twist his arm behind his back, get him because you love us and now you have to save us. God doesn't do that because he's pained. He doesn't send his son. He sends his son because and forgives our transgressions, He's helios to our unrighteousnesses. He's cheerful to our unrighteousnesses. Favorable, benevolent. They don't constitute a barrier. That might seem very strange. Very strange. But that's what the word means. And it applies both to God as he forgives and his attitude towards us. And that's why we celebrate the new covenant. And that's why we call it good news. That's good news, isn't it? With respect to God and you. His attitude toward you through faith in Christ is sin does not create a barrier. He doesn't go from, oh, there's my son. Oh, you sinned. That's not what he does. He is helios to our unrighteousnesses and remembers our sins no more. Um, This was to be the nature of the Philippians' contributions to Paul, the same sort of thing. Um, He writes, when he writes to the Philippians, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He thanks them for their gift, but he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea, and he walks a line here. On the one hand, he wants them to understand that their contribution out of material resources was no less spiritual than other things that they could have done. We tend to, maybe some would see being able to contribute financially as a, well, that's not, that doesn't really count. It's something you have to do. But Paul doesn't see it that way. Done for the right reason, giving is every bit as much an expression of devotion as leading a Bible study. Or praying, it's, it's just, it all depends why you do what you do. That's why with God, motive is everything. And individuals who, in order to further God's ministry, write checks and fund churches, and God accepts that as a valid expression of devotion, as the same thing as if you were telling somebody about Jesus or doing something like that. It all goes in the same pot for him. Um, But while he appreciates their love and concern, He has a problem. He doesn't want them to link contentment and material abundance. So he wants to say thanks for what you sent, but he doesn't want to make too big a thing out of it. 
because he doesn't want to guilt them into giving again or to lead them to believe I was really desperate and I was in I was not going to be taken care of. And, you know, thank you so much, because that's not the way he related to things. He wanted them to understand when, in fact, he separated contentment and material abundance. Look what he says in Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's a very strange word. It literally means self-sufficient. I have learned to be self-sufficient. It was a word that the Stoics used. It was something that you would want. You would want to not be too dependent. And some of us, we understand what it's like. We think of growing older. We think of moving to our own death and do not want to be in a position where we're not able to care for ourselves, to be dependent upon someone else. We prefer to be self-sufficient, to not need. Paul's painting that picture. It's to be adequate in one's self, contented with one's lot. What Paul says, I have learned the secret of being self-sufficient. And why would he say that? I think Paul had a love-hate relationship with money and possessions. He was a Pharisee, and he was aware of what Jesus said to the Pharisees, look what it says in your worshipful Luke 16, 13 through 15. Jesus confronted the Pharisees and gives us a sense for what drove them. No servant can serve two masters, Jesus says. For he will, he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, we've talked about this before. In the culture at the time, money is given godlike status. And it makes sense because both God and money make promises. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. God makes that promise. I will never leave you. I will never cast you adrift. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you behind. That's what it means. But money makes the same promise in a way, doesn't it? I will never leave you. If you have amassed enough of me, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. If you have money, you will always be provided for. You will never be cast adrift. You will never be left behind. So there are these rival deities that make the same claim. One of them can fulfill that claim and the other one can't. Um, Paul goes on. The Pharisees, I mean, Jesus says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him, jeered at him. He's he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And we know the Pharisees. They would also, when they gave, they were fairly generous, I would imagine. But when they gave, they had people come and ring bells. So, and it's not the ice cream thing. Remember the ice cream trucks? Some of us remain old people. 
We were very old people. Remember ice cream trucks? They used, they used to come into the neighborhood, and they, in the afternoon, you'd hear this ringing, and there was this ice cream truck, like a van that came, and then mom give me the money and would run. How many remember? Come on. Come on. Is that right? That's surprising. More of you are old than I. <laughs> um, uh, they, that's kind of what they would do, but they would ring bells and they would put it in. And Jesus said, you have your reward in full. Everybody sees what you're doing. And Jesus said, give to your father who is in secret. And your father who is sees in secret will reward you. He sees the motive. And for the Pharisees, it was all about getting the glory of men. Um, Paul avoided any basis for being in ministry to make money. He avoided it. In fact, he made a very strong commitment to it. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 12. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And what Paul taught as a principle are those who gave their lives to the understanding and proclamation of the good news, they should be able to earn a living from it. And that's what he taught in his churches. But he himself, look what it says, but we did not use this right. He had a right to accept contributions on a regular basis. But look what he says. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. There's a sense of self-sufficiency that's not just, oh, I can take it. It's, no, I do not want, and why would he do that? Maybe a couple things. Maybe it was a reaction to his own understanding of what it was like to be a Pharisee. And he remembers, and maybe Paul had a thing with money. And he had to kind of push it away because it might have been a temptation or it might have been that or he didn't want to be charged with being in ministry in order to gain a living or earning a bunch of money as individuals did at the time. And he wanted to make sure that none of the Pharisees who were always nipping at his heels, they would not be able to point to the money in his pocket and say, yeah, yeah, he's just pausing it for the money. And that's why he said no. But at any rate, Paul had a real thing with money, and he then wants them to understand that um, he doesn't, he's not in it for that purpose. Part of the thing with, if you're a Pharisee, it's not that they were just greedy, which they were, but you can make a strong case for the health and wealth gospel out of the Old Testament. Would you agree? It's the promises God makes in the Old Testament that if you are devoted, there will be land, seed, and blessing. That's how God rewarded. If you remember Job, he had, he got land and he was had a big family, and God blessed him. And so in the Old Testament, if you were obedient, it would reflect itself in that you were prosperous, healthy, and wealthy. On this side of the cross, that analogy goes away. You cannot, you cannot argue 
for a health and wealth gospel on this side of the cross. Just not possible. Not possible. And so that's when, when you look at or listen to preachers and TV evangelists, and if they're making a strong case for give a thousand and God will give you ten thousand back, they will always need to be taking that text from the Old Testament. It's it's just not in the, it's not in the New. At least what James says. Um, it's again, it's not possible to argue for material advantage as an example of spiritual favor from Jesus on. You just can't do it. And if, if you have a lot of money, it, it doesn't necessarily blow you up. But if you don't have a lot of money, it's not a sign that God is displeased with you. We can buy that, right? That makes sense for us, doesn't it? Look what James says. In fact, James is a little bit sharp. Uh, let me, I'll read you a couple passages. It says, James 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We sell to people with a lot of money. Um, that's too bad. That's too bad. Um, I feel bad for you. Um, if you're poor, you know what? You're in a good spot. If you're rich, um, we can't have it all. <laughs> Some of us have to have money. <laughs> kind of weird. Goes on. Says, um, for the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It has the sense of somebody moving after money, thinking that he's grabbing onto something that will never leave him and never forsake him. And in the middle of the pursuit, he is cast adrift and left behind. And that's why it, the Bible indicates those who are rich, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so insecure. Put your hope in Jesus. Leverage the things that you have to help people, to contribute, to do good things. That's what the Bible would indicate. James says in 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen? Listen to what it says. <laughs> listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor? in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him it's a strong word like other churches in the Roman Empire the Philippians were pulled into materialism by both secular and sacred context if you were in the Roman Empire they had a bunch of money they were conquering people left and right and and if you were under the influence of a Jewish church Synagogue, 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. You were encouraged to see devotion as being evidenced by prosperity, by health and wealth. Um, the Philippians needed to hear and see exemplified in Paul that he was not linking contentment and material possessions. And that's why when he talks about, I received the offering, thank you, but I need you to know that while I appreciated your gift, I'm not dependent on it. I'm self-sufficient. And that's not to take anything away from the gift. It's about Paul putting some boundaries and barriers that were helpful for him and for them. Um, he goes on. He says, "I again, Philippians 4.11, I have learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret 
of being content, self-sufficient. Discontentment comes naturally. It doesn't take long for parents to see kids that there is a nature in in children. It tends to be a little bit grabby. Um, We don't need to learn discontentment. That comes naturally. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content. Contentment does not come naturally. Does not come naturally. It has to be learned. And the school at which we learn contentment comes through living in plenty or in want. Like we talked about it last year, the serenity prayer. Um, God gives us the serenity. But Reinhold Niebuhr that's not what he said. Again, I'm not blowing up the serenity prayer. It's, it's really good. But there was a clarification what he said. He didn't say, God, give us the serenity. He said, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. There's a difference, isn't there? God, give us serenity to accept the things that cannot be changed. God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. God doesn't give us serenity. He gives us the grace to accept with serenity things that cannot be changed. What's the difference? Well, how do you receive grace? How do you receive grace? You know what a better question is? That's not a good question. It's not how do we receive grace. You know what a better question is? Who receives grace? Who receives grace? And the Bible is clear. God gives grace to the, you know, God gives grace to the humble. Humble. Talk about humble. To be humble in the Roman Empire is is what was characterized as a slave. As you're a slave in the Roman Empire, you cannot leverage economic, social, material resources to get what you want. You just have no leverage. You have no leverage. You don't have anything in your pocket to take out and say, okay, let me just slip you a little bit of help, you know, to kind of help things go in my direction. If you were in the Roman Empire and were a slave, you had nothing. You had no status in the courtroom. You had no weight before a judge. You really were stuck. You were seen to be humble. You cannot use what you have to get what you want. God gives grace to the humble. That's not a great picture, is it? Humble is not self-effacing in the Bible. Oh, no, it wasn't me. No, 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 please, please. Um, The Bible, humble is, I guess there's nothing I can do. Um, I have to learn to, that I can't use what I have to get what I want. That's That's humble. In order to receive grace, we need to experience humility. 
in order to develop humility, we need to be humble. The process of learning humility, it's pretty clear. And I don't think it's changed. Let me just read. I don't have it in the worship folder, but we've talked about it. I'll read just two sentences. He humbled you. He humbled you. It says to those who are in the wilderness, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. What's the product? What's the process of being humble? Again, humbled leads to humility, which leads to grace, which leads to contentment. Um, what's the process? It is being caused to hunger. That's pretty simple. You know how you're caused to hunger? Your supply line dries up. That's how you're caused to hunger. That thing that you're depending on to supply the things that will allow everything to keep coming, it's gone. You're laid off. You're laid off. Where am I going to, where, wait, how, or your retirement dries up. What, how, where, what? That's caused to hunger. And then fed with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, fed in an unexpected way. That's what the process of being humbled is like. What is the goal? It says to teach you in Deuteronomy that man does not live on bread alone. And it says in my translation, NIV, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I've told you this. The when it says every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, it's not, word is not there. So here's what it says. Man does not live on bread alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And you know what the point is? Where does bread come from? Bread comes from the mouth of the Lord. What else comes from the mouth of the Lord? You know what else comes up? Words. Words come from the mouth of the Lord. You know when we have to grab onto those words? when we can't reach into our pocket and just pull out the things we need to get what we want. When the checkbook goes dry, that's when we have to hang on. So the process of being humbled is being caused to hunger, fed in an unexpected way to teach us that, man, we don't live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The fact is, we don't really trust God until we have to. And it's not just about money. Money is part of it. But Paul is not just talking about money. He says, I've learned the secret of being content because Paul had money. There were times he had money and there were times he didn't. What he learned is the secret of contentment is found in having grace and grace through humility. He'll talk about strength as well. Can we say this, though? Serenity. Contentment is linked to learning to trust his words. We can say that, can't we? Contentment and serenity is linked directly with learning to trust his words. Would you agree with me? This is not an easy process. Do you agree with me? 
the road to serenity is anything but serene. Anything but serene. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This text is used to support getting what you want. It's unlimited living. But that's not really what the text is saying. It's actually written to help us to learn how not to get what we want. That's why this text is written. I can do all things through through him who gives me strength. My life is unlimited. It's just one possibility after another. And this verse is used at those type of seminars and stuff like that. Not its purpose. This is not about how you can get what you want, but how you cannot, how not to get what you want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, even tolerate a job loss, as difficult as that would be and is. A financial reversal. Declining health where I am in a place where I have to depend on someone else. And for some of us, that is something we're not looking forward to. I don't want that. We can do all things through him who gives us strength. What contentment comes from? Grace and strength. Not stuff. Not for, again, money is not really the object. It's really the object of your faith. And again, it's a struggle for us. It's a struggle for us. Some of you are in desperate straits, difficult places. You say, what have I done wrong? Nothing. You're in the wilderness. You're being taught. You're being parented. God's teaching. God teaches us. You say, what should I do then? Yes, and we'll do this as we celebrate communion in a minute. Hold on to two things for me. Hold on to two things for me. Hold on to your concerns. Don't let them go. Hold on to his commitments. Don't let them go. We have a tendency to drop one or the other. Some of us, we hold on to our concerns, our challenges, and we let go of his commitments. God must hate me. Some of us hold on to his commitments, but let go of our concerns. How are you doing? Oh, fine. Yeah, God loves me. Yeah, I know he loves you, but how are you doing? I said fine. (laughs) Thank you very much. No. Be real. You can be real about your concerns and real about his commitments. This is the way to walk through life. Be authentic with him about the things you're going through. Don't pretend. God doesn't, he doesn't, you don't need to pretend he already knows it. Be honest with him. Hold on to your concerns and hold on to his commitments. And sometimes you'll feel pulled in half. Okay, join the club. That's what it's like. Holding on to two different things, sometimes an empty checkbook and, and holding on to promises. But do the best to hold on, especially if you're in a difficult place. Some of you are. And when you talk to him, don't pretend with him. Don't pretend. God, I feel abandoned. I remember I told him that once. One, 
one New Year's and a difficult year. I said, you know what? I think I'm supposed to trust you for this year. And it feels like you abandoned me this past year. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And when you, when you're authentic with him, it surfaces things. I feel lousy. I feel sad. So be honest with him. And then, and on the other side, God, I can see things I learned this past year. I don't want to repeat it, but I see things that I've learned and this is kind of what it's like. Hold on to your concerns and hold on to his commitments. So sometimes you hear when we celebrate communion, we're going to celebrate communion in a minute. Um, leave all your problems behind and just go up to the table. Just be thankful. You know what I'm asking you to do? Don't put your stuff underneath the chair. You know, I'm not talking about literal stuff. Take your concerns with you to the table. Take your concerns. God, I'm scared. Hold on to your concerns, but I know that you love me. Hold on to his commitments. That's the way to do it. And you know what? The reason you do this is to eliminate tension, right? Do this to eliminate tension? You do it to endure tension. That's why you do this. Your tension is natural. If you're in a difficult place, I hope you're not all bright and smiley because that means there's something wrong mentally. really does. It means you're taking something and you're pushing it down and you're dissociating. Don't do that. Don't do that. You can take me and just hold on to that and hold on to him and be real with him and real about your concerns, real about his commitments. And the reason you do that is to endure tension, to endure it. And you do that a day at a time. Um, we're going to experience communion. It brings us to the table. God makes some promises to you that money can't make. Here's what he says to you. I will never cast you adrift. When it says I will never leave you, it's about untying a boat so that it just gets carried by the current. Some of you feel like you're being carried by a current and the current is leading to bad. You say, I must be on a bad stretch I must be in a bad place. And you look around and it seems like a bad place. You ask, am I on a good road or not? It looks like a bad road. Maybe maybe a better question is, not am I on a good road or a bad road, a good river or a bad river? Here's a better question. Do I have a good shepherd? Do I have a good shepherd? It's the good shepherd's job to get you to a good place. Some of you feel like you're going to crash into the rocks of bad, into a bad place. You can't because he will not cast you adrift. He promised and he will not leave you behind. And what that means, if you're in a difficult place, he will not. He will do, again, the Marines, Semper Fi. Never leave somebody on the field of battle. God says, Semper Fi, I will not leave you. I will not cast you adrift, and I will not leave you behind. That's what this table says. Hold on to that. Money will say the same thing, but it's not going to come through. Again, you're going to have to deal with money. Um, but know that these are the promises that he wants us to face. So go up, and as you're taking the bread and taking the cup, stands for God sending his son, talk about somebody who you can trust. 
to fulfill his promises. Yeah. If he sends his son for you, will he withhold anything? I mean, if he gave the greatest thing, he's not going to, he's not going to care about lesser things, right? You can trust him. Um, so think about, he will not cast me adrift. He won't leave me behind. And uh, sometime during the course of this song, then, go get the elements. I'm not going to tell you when to take them, but think of Jesus and think of what his death means in terms of these two promises. I will not cast you adrift. I will not leave you behind. I want you to think about this. He will not cast me adrift. He will not leave me. He will not leave me behind. He won't leave me on the field alone. And then take it and then we'll sing a song to close the service. Father, I thank you for your parenting and would ask that you would make us more like Christ. It really does settle our heart to know that you are helios to our unrighteousnesses because of the covenant that Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurates. You would have us believe that. You would tell us to believe it and continue to make room for it. You Give us commitments. You tell us that you'll never cast us adrift and never leave us behind. And I'd ask that you would continue to allow us to sink the roots of our faith deeper into that. In the midst of struggles, perhaps, help us to to drive the roots of our faith deeper. I pray that you would give us the ability to manage our resources wisely. We have them, and you would have us manage them. Would you continue to teach us to be your sons and daughters, and thankful that you are so good at doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.